0: Of Acts. If you are visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of Acts one passage at a time. We are in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. It's good to have Michael Weinbaum back with us. He's been working over in Germany for the past several months, Uh, so he had his guitar up here today, and Jason took his mandolin and his new bride and uh, went to Disney World last night to begin their honeymoon and on to Savannah, Georgia. So uh, we pray that he and Marissa will just have a wonderful week as they start their life together. Please hear God's word, Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 22. And just to let you know, this is the end of Peter's sermon where he had healed the lame beggar. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham in your also, spring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, your willingness to bless us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, and uh, having Him come and die in our place, and having His Spirit come and turn us from our wickedness and back to You. Father, I pray that You would bless both the reading and the hearing uh, and the proclamation of Your Word as we lift up Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in His name. Amen. As I said, this, ser- this passage is actually the end of Peter's sermon. Uh, it's the third week that we have been looking here at this, uh, at this passage with the lame beggar. But what really struck me this week as I looked at this passage is Peter's sermon seems to end with a fizzle rather than with a sizzle. And what I mean by that is we're used to hearing the application at the end of a sermon. You know, the pastor is is uh, building his points, point upon point upon point for the punch there at the end. Well, Peter did something a little differently. Um, he... Uh, offers his application really in the middle of the sermon. And on either side of his application are his proofs for why the application is true. And so let me just remind you of what we've looked at here in this passage. in uh, verses one through ten, Peter and John are making their way into the temple uh, for prayer, and there is a man who is lame. He has been lame from birth. He's been there, or he's been lame for forty years, and for many years he's been sitting at this temple gate, and he would ask uh, for alms, ask for handouts, whether it be food or or money, in order that he might be able uh, to live. And uh, Peter and John did not have any money with them at the time. And, he, and so Peter said, "I do not have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk." And this man immediately, his feet and his legs were strengthened. and He hopped up and he began leaping about and praising God. And all the people in the temple who had recognized this man, who that because they had gone in and out of the temple for prayer uh, for years and years, they realized that a miracle had happened. And so Peter's first point in uh, verses 11-16, through 16, he says God raised this lame beggar from the ground. John, Peter and John did not do it, God did it. And, he, and God did it as proof that he raised Jesus from the grave and he has glorified his servant Jesus at the Father's right hand. And so there's the proof. This man who is leaping up and down and praising God, who had formerly uh, been lame from birth, and so then his application is that you killed Jesus, the holy and righteous one, who was the author of life. You put him on the cross. You allowed. You asked instead for a murderer, Barabbas, to be um, released to you because you were so intent on putting Jesus from the cross on, on the cross and so you must therefore and this seems to be the, the finale of his sermon you must repent that your sins might be wiped out if I were preaching if I were Peter I would have stopped at that point but instead he goes and after makes this application about repenting he then offers three proofs uh, for uh for the, um, for the validity of this this miracle that has been done and his proof basically in verses twenty two through twenty five is that Christianity is not a new religion Now for us we would say yes of course it's not new it's two thousand years old but what i'm making what I'm arguing this morning, is that Christianity is a lot older than 2,000 years old. That what Peter is telling those Jews uh, who he is preaching to is that Christianity is thousands and thousands of years old. In fact, Christianity goes back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Where after the fall, God said, I will raise up a seed from the one woman. I will raise up an offspring from the woman who will destroy, uh, who will crush the serpent's head. That Christianity goes back that far. What Peter does here in verses 22-25 through is he grounds Christianity squarely in the Old Testament. Christianity is grounded in the resurrection of Christ. That's the first part of his sermon. But it's also grounded in the Old Testament. Remember, Peter is preaching in Jerusalem. In fact, he is preaching in the temple itself. And so he is preaching to Jews. And he is teaching these Jews that this new sect, these followers of Jesus are really not a new sect. That they are the true Israel. That they are the ones whom the Old Testament is really speaking about. The very purpose of the Old Testament, Peter is saying, is to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me try and use an illustration here. Um, I'm going to use the Allafia River as my illustration. When I cross the Allafia River, typically on my way to David Crabtrees, uh, going down Bell Shoals, you, you've crossed the river right before you get to Boyette, and you look over the river and it looks basically like a swampy creek doesn't look like much. You have to kind of really strain to look down and see the river uh, there amongst the foliage. But if you go down a few miles to the west and cross the Alafia River on US 301, well now you're crossing a legitimate river. Now you're crossing a river where people can take their speedboats up and down uh, and It's a full-fledged river, and it's even got, if you look off to the west, a little tropical island with the the palm trees there um, in the middle of the river, uh, such is the the width. In other words, um, it is the same river, but further upstream, it looks different than it does as it begins to get toward the mouth or toward the end of the river. But it's the same river, the same water. And the reason why I'm saying this is the Old Testament looks a little different than the New Testament. But it's the same river. It has the same source. It's all flowing in the same direction, same water. And uh, this is important because Christianity is often wrongly thought of as being simply a branch off of Judaism. In other words, people like to think that Christianity takes a different direction than Judaism. And so they like to think or they tend to think that Christianity takes a different direction from the Old Testament, and that is not true. Um, Christianity is the river. Christianity is the outflow of the Old Testament. Um, Christianity does not branch off. Rather, Judaism branches off um, from the true river. Uh, 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 Judaism branches off from the true purpose of the Old Testament. In fact, the Jews, I would say, are not even in a separate branch of the Alifiah River. They have taken their canoe, so to speak, out of the river and marched over to the St. John's River. The Alifa River flows from east to west. The St. John's River flows from west to east. It ends up in the Atlantic Ocean. And my argument is, and and Peter's argument is that Judaism has picked up and is going in a different direction. That they have turned away from the real purpose of the Old Testament. In fact, the Bible says that the Jews are an apostate religion. The Apostle Paul says, as far as the gospel is concerned, as he's talking about Judaism, they are enemies on your account. But yet God, in His unceasing love... And because of his faithfulness, is holding his hands out to the Jews, uh, proclaiming Christ to the Jews with the full intention of bringing them out of the St. John's River and back into the Aliphate. In other words, bringing them back to the faith, in fact, the apostle Paul continues, but as far as election is concerned, the Jews are loved on account of the patriarchs for god 's gift and his call are irrevocable. they have left the river, but God is going to bring them back and so this is peter 's argument if you 'll just take a couple of moments to look at look at this passage with me verse twenty two Peter's argument is that Moses knew that he was but the precursor, but the forerunner of the Messiah. Verse 22 and 23. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him. uh, You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Moses simply says, I am a forerunner. I point to the Messiah. I, there's, he's going to be a, a prophet like me but he's going to be greater than me. Uh, and then Peter goes on in verse 24 that all the prophets knew that their prophecies foretold the Messiah. Verse 24. And all the prophets who had spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. These present days that Peter is preaching. In fact, he goes on in verse 25, "...and you are sons of the prophets." Because the prophets were looking beyond their own day. They were looking forward to the Messiah. And then verse 25, "...even the covenant made with Abraham only finds its fulfillment in the Messiah." He says, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your forefathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. Here's the implications, and I'll try and be quick. There is a basic unity between the Old Testament and New Testament. I had a pastor friend that uh, the way he taught me this is he would open up to the Old Testament and to the last page of the New Testament. And what he would do is he would tear the blank page out that said the New Testament. And he said, it is only the newer Testament that is the same message uh, throughout. That it's not two separate messages so there's a basic unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament because it's all about Jesus Christ. The New Testament, certainly there is some disunity. Uh, the New Testament makes clear where that, that disunity exists. For example, the dietary laws. Jesus says specifically we're not to keep uh, the Old Testament dietary laws. And we, we don't... We no longer are to live under a theocracy. Uh, Romans 13 says that we are to be submissive to the government uh, under which we live. And so there, there is disunity, but this, this, the New Testament makes it clear where that disunity lies. Uh, another implication is that the Abrahamic covenant is still in place. Uh, That is uh, Peter's point. And also, the New Testament is not some kind of plan B that was unexpected. And this is probably the most important thing that I want to stress to you. That many Christians think that the Old Testament is irrelevant. Uh, It's not as irrelevant as the New Testament. But it is relevant because all of it... Teaches that Jesus Christ is the focal point, that Jesus Christ is the purpose of the Scriptures. And so, for instance, in, uh, Jesus himself says that he is the, old, the focus of the Old Testament. Luke 24, verses 25-27. through 27, he said to them, as he's talking to the two men on the Emmaus road, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Or Luke twenty four, verses forty four through forty seven, as he's meeting with the the eleven uh, disciples, Judas having killed himself by this point, Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. Then he opened their minds that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. This is what is written in the Old Testament. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's why I included these quotes here on the front of your bulletin uh, that you could look over. Uh, Charles Hodge: The Old Testament Scriptures are in are are intelligible only when understood as predicting and prefiguring Christ. A. W. Tozer: You can perfect you can be perfectly free to go with your Bible with the assurance that you will find Jesus Christ everywhere in its pages. On and on and on. J. I. Packer: Jesus um, uh, says that He Himself. Or Jesus say He. I must have had a typo here. uh, Is the key to the Scripture, and uh, it is the key to Himself. But everywhere you look in the Bible, it it takes you to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, after after we finish the Book of Acts, I hope to take us into the Old Testament and uh, preach from that for a bit. So that we can see the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the scriptures. This is important because we need to see the gospel proclaimed uh, throughout the scriptures. Also in seeing the unity, in seeing how something that was written thousands of years before the Lord Jesus even was born here on earth, how it speaks of him, it builds our faith to see that unity. Jesus, I mean, but uh, Peter says in verse 26 to conclude his sermon, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. In other words, Peter is saying God did not send Christ to condemn, but he sent Jesus in order to bless. This is perfectly in keeping with all of the scriptures. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, which is rarely quoted, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? In other words, it is the grace of God that is our motive for trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was raised in a church where every Sunday the pastor did everything he could with his hand up raised to scare everybody in the congregation into being a Christian. And the, the the picture that I came away with was God was up in heaven and his hand was raised and he was waiting for me to get out of line. And if I didn't get in line, he was going to squish me like a bug and he was going to do it quickly. And if I didn't come to Christ or if I came to Christ and then I got out of line, then he was going to get me then as well. He was the get you God. That's the God I learned about in the Bible. But that Is not the God that we worship. That is not the God that I am urging you to place your trust in. The God of the Bible did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through His Son. It is is His kindness, it is His grace, His patience, His tolerance... That is the motive that leads us towards repentance. Now, we know from the Old Testament, because there is a basic unity throughout, that God will not tolerate unrepentance. He was patient with the Israelites. He was patient with them for decades, for centuries, for millennia. They would not repent. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 uh, tells you about the stubborn hard heartedness of the Israelites. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, God did not send His Son, Jesus, into the world to condemn you. Every human being that has ever been born since Adam, including you, was born condemned already because of the sin. But God is holding His arms out to the world, to all peoples, and He is saying, Whosoever will come, turn, be saved. Now we know theologically that a person will not turn unless God makes the difference unless He turns them. But I want you to see that God views repentance as a blessing and that He is patient that He is um, gracious that He is kind towards sinners He sent His Son Jesus into the world in order to seek and save sinners. So the question is, what will you do this morning if you are outside of Jesus Christ? What are you going to do? He says here in verse 26, God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Repentance is a blessing. I notice that Christians have a tendency to hide when they do something wrong. When someone stops coming to church for a while, it is oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, because they are feeling guilty of their sins. Repentance is a blessing. Repentance is the doorway into fellowship with God. By necessity of the fact that you are a sinner and for you to enter into God's presence and turn to Jesus you also have to walk through the doorway of repentance but it is a blessing but it is also a grace it is a, to bless you he says by turning every one of you uh, from your wickedness it is God who does the turning it is god who grants repentance so i want to be very practical here in the last moment of the sermon what do you do when you see that you have sinned against god and you're caught and you don't know how to get out of out of that sin and you don't know if you're really sure if you want to get out of that sin This is where the Israelites were that Peter was preaching to. What are you going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ? My urge, urging to you is to open God's word because he is kind and patient, um, wanting to lead you toward repentance. Read His Word. Be reminded of His love. Be reminded of His grace. Be reminded that He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And read His Word and seek Him. And if you seek Him, God says you'll find Him. And He will turn you from your sin. He will turn you back to the Lord Jesus Christ. What would you do this morning? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, first of all, I do pray that you would help us as a congregation to read your word. To read your word in its entirety. Father, it it angers my soul that there are many preachers that are urging Uh, Christians to ignore the Old Testament. Father, it angers me even more that there would be people who would say that the Jews have a whole different form of salvation other than Jesus Christ. Father, protect us from that. And Father, secondly, I pray that You would turn our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, that You would help us to see that repentance is Your grace to us, whereby we enjoy wonderful fellowship with You through Your Son. Father, You have promised that when we turn our joy to gloom and our, uh, and our uh, smiles into tears of sadness... And we humble ourselves before you that you will give us grace, that you will lift us up. And so I pray, Father, for everyone here in the various sins that they struggle with. Remind them of your grace, your goodness, your kindness, your love. And lead them back to repentance. Because in so doing they are led back to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I pray in his name. Amen.